0: Hosanna in excelsis. Uh, the um, this uh, comes from. Uh, it's a very, very old uh, part of the Buddhist tradition um, because it comes from a time when, um, just after the Buddha's enlightenment, um, contemplating the insight that he had. Um, he had realized the truth that he would realized as being uh, extraordinarily subtle, abstruse, difficult, hard to see, and that it um, had taken him so long and so much struggle uh, to to uh, to penetrate, to understand. And that uh, his first, the Buddha's first thought was that um, there's no point trying to explain this. That there's absolutely no one, no one is ever going to get this. This is far too abstruse and difficult, hard to see. So uh, I don't think I'll bother. It'll just be, if I try to explain this to anybody, it'll just be a, a vexation and a worry, a bother to me. And so uh, initially the Buddha's um, inclination was to not teach. So then, um, that thought forming itself in his mind, one of the, one of the Brahma gods... The Brahma Sahampati, who was the, um, the sort of the governor of this part of the cosmos, um, then overheard this thought in the mind of the Buddha and thought, "Oh no, oh no! The world will be lost. The world will be utterly lost." Uh, for the, the mind of the of the Tathagata, the uh, the Blessed One, favors inaction. So then he beams down from the Brahma realm. And appears in front of the Buddha as a, a Brahmin youth, a young, a young Brahmin man, and then kneeling, uh, um, with one knee on the ground and his hands, palms together. Then he makes that this appeal to the to the Buddha, saying, um, "There are those uh, who have only uh, a little dust in their eyes, and for the sake of those, uh, please." teach the Dhamma, explain what you know, otherwise the world will be lost. So then the Buddha surveyed the the world with his um, uh, all-seeing, compassionate eye and realized that, yes, indeed it's true that um, there are those with, with dull faculties but there are also those with keen faculties and uh, that um, indeed there are, there are some who will understand. So then he said, okay, I'll teach you. And then spent the next forty-five years walking barefoot around the Ganges Valley, uh, meeting the likes of Aslot and uh, sharing his wisdom with all those who were interested. But it's uh, a part of a Buddhist practice and Buddhist tradition since then that the the dhamma is is always requested, so that even though you know I've been uh, invited here and IMS paid my ticket, and you've you know. You've fulfilled in your forms, and my name is on the program. <laughs> Still, um, the uh, appropriate thing is for the, the teaching to be requested so that it's never um, the Dhamma is never dumped upon people. It's always um, the, the, the person who's listening is always in the position of having come to it. So you, you can't force someone to listen to the Dhamma because if, you, if you're forcing them, it's not the Dhamma. So any of you who'd like to leave now, please. <laughs> 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 um, which is a very beautiful uh, principle um, and something very precious within the, the Buddhist tradition that it's not a proselytizing um, uh, tradition. It's not a proselytizing way at all. Even though, and also, um, one of the um, the elements uh, of this is too that even though uh, someone who's teaching might talk in a very um, uh, assertive or proclamatory way, um, still the the context for for listening to the dhamma should be to to open your heart to it, to not be trying to take notes or or um uh, Criticise it, but just to listen, take it all in, and then that which resonates and makes sense and is meaningful to to take that and keep that, and that which is um, uh, you disagree with or you, you you know to not be true or or you're in doubt about, then just to leave that to one side, so that um, you know very often that's what a, a, a how a, a teaching would be concluded with like whatever is useful. Take it and use it. Whatever's, whatever's useless, then leave it behind. And uh, so, in the same spirit, that it's it's always up to the listener to be to be attentive and to be working with what with what you're hearing, and not just um, taking what is said as um, as a kind of uh, absolute truth. And it's interesting also that even the scriptures are cast in this form. If you if you have ever read any of the, the Theravada, also the Mahayana Sutras, um, that they begin with this phrase, Thus have I heard. Have you ever wondered where that comes from? It will begin, the, uh, the, the major discourses all begin with, Thus have I heard. So w- this comes from the the, the time after the Buddha's passing away and the, the Sangha had a, a, a council and at uh, this time of 500 enlightened disciples of the Buddha gathered and they asked Ananda who'd been the Buddha's attendant who had a, a perfect recall and one of the, one of the, the, um, the uh, conditions that he took on the job of, of uh, being the Buddha's attendant um, he made some very interesting conditions. One of which was that he was never—he he asked the Buddha to never give him anything that the Buddha had been had been given, like robes or alms bowl or any kind of nice goodies. He said, "If you ever get given anything, I want you to not give me anything because otherwise people will say I'm helping you so that I can cash in." <laughs> um, and one of the other conditions was to say that to ask the Buddha to repeat any teaching he'd given during any day. He asked uh, Ananda, asked him, "Will you repeat it to me if I'm not around at the time, so that I can I can hear and learn everything that you teach?" So the Buddha did this, and then after he passed away, then they, the, the sangha sat Ananda down and said, "Okay, recite." <laughs> and so he um, he recited all the discourses um which is uh, you know tens of thousands of words and uh, and so the scriptures are still cast in this form that they begin with thus have i heard this is ananda speaking so what you have in the scriptures is not actually the word of the buddha it's the wor- it's what ananda remembers that's what is there in the texts so that even that is not put forward as the as the kind of absolute truth this is put forward of uh, this is, as Ananda saying, this is what I heard, not this is the truth. Which is interesting that even in, in that mode, the, the scriptures are not put forward as to um, to be uh, the the kind of the voice of an uh, absolute authority. Uh, one of the, um, the subjects that was um, suggested to talk about um, somebody brought up today uh, is one of the, the central themes and one of the, the themes that is probably unique to, uh, to the Buddha's teaching amongst all the other elements of, uh, of uh, his dispensation and this is the, the teaching of anattā or selflessness. But um, this is something that is, is not only you know quite unique, but also uh, bewildering and perplexing, or, or uh, misunderstood in many ways. So, of course, now I'm going to tell you how it really is. <laughs> but um, this is a, a curious, a curious teaching and stands out from all of the the, the teachings that are uh, contemporary to him within the the Vedic tradition and uh, Upanishads and also in terms of Western religions and spiritual teachings and the Judaic or Islamic Christian teachings and and most other uh, wisdom traditions of the world. Now the question of self um, you know what are we is uh, is a question that is, is uh, has been asked for thousands of years and uh, along with um you know where did I come from? what am I? what are we? what is a human being um, as a sort of philosophical conundrum that uh there's a, a thousand different answers for, and the um, the Buddha points this out. I mean, this is where the in a way his discussion begins: is that you know we, we wonder, you know everybody wonders, because of all the things in the world, I seem to be the most real. To ourselves, we are the most real thing, aren't we? If anything in the world is real, at least you know, we are. At least to me, I, I seem like the most real thing around. I'm sure to you, you seem like the most real thing around. Maybe not always, but... <laughs> but generally speaking, you know, that is... Um, that sense of, of I, me, this, this thing here, whatever this is, and then as a, that's moving around in a, an external world. Perhaps we can't define what we are, but we certainly there's a sense of being and, and, and selfhood that's here, and so um, we we pick this up and we wonder, well, what is this? What am I? What is what is this? This sense of, of, of personhood, selfhood, and then the the Buddha um, in talking about this he says the um, the unwise um, ordinary person um, considers. Uh, Considers it in this way, thinking, What am I? Where did I come from? Having been what? How did I get here? And being what now, what will I become in the future? What was I in the past? What will I become? Do I exist? Do I not exist? Do I both exist and not exist? Do I neither exist nor not exist? Does myself exist? Does myself not exist? is this the self looking at the not-self? Or is this the not-self looking at the self? Or is this the not-self looking at the not-self, or the self looking at the self? And he kind of goes into this wonderful um, philosophical tangle, saying, this is how the foolish, (laughs) the unwise, untaught, ordinary person uh, considers. He says, this is the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views. And one who remains I- entrapped in views in this way will not come to the end of suffering i say now this is I- it's interesting because you know the, the majority of philosophical traditions and wisdom traditions are, are picking up this this uh, experience of selfhood and trying to come to some sort of def- definitive philosophical position about what the self is and, and how to define it and to, to to stipulate how it exists and, and in what way and in, in relationship to the to the universe and so on but the the buddha goes right to that and says you know this is the, the wilderness of views this is the, the contortion the vacillation this is the the labyrinth of views and that as long as you as long as we try to to establish the reality in terms of a a conceptual viewpoint we're always going to be missing it we're always going to miss the reality. So the Buddha immediately comes it to the, the point that it's defining what is real uh, is, is not possible in the world of concept or words. There's another very famous passage from the teachings where the Buddha says um, Yena Yena Hi Manyanti tato Hoti Anyatati which means, for whatever, uh, for whatever the truth is conceived to be, the reality is ever other than that. Whatever you conceive yourself to be, the reality is ever other than that. And it doesn't. And it's not just because you haven't come up with the right idea yet. <laughs> it's not because you kind of you haven't got your act together. And you, you, if you just polished your your. Um, logical, deductive processes, you would you would uh, figure it out. It's like that uh, the reality is always other than that. There's another another place where the Buddha says um, that um, those who are... Let's see, I actually bought, the, bought the, the book here, so I might as well quote it. <laughs> it's, um, the earlier passage that I was probably misquoting says, Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Am I? Or else he wonders about himself now in the presently arisen period. Do I exist? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? In the second passage, the Buddha says, um, there are two kinds of wrong view. And when... Uh, when beings are in their grip some hang back and some overreach it's only those with vision that see how does some hang back? there are some who love being who delight in being, who enjoy being and when the Dhamma is expounded to them for the ending of being their hearts do not go out to it or acquire confidence, steadiness and decision so they hang back how do some overreach? Some are ashamed, humiliated and disgusted by the sense of being. And they look forward to non-being in this way, saying, when with the dissolution of the body this self is cut off, annihilated and, uh, and, annihilated, and accordingly after death no longer is, that is the most peaceful, that is the goal superior to all. That is reality. So some overreach. And how do those with vision see? Here, One sees whatever has come into being as come to being. By seeing it thus, they have entered upon the way to dispassion for it, to the fading and cessation of lust for it. That is how one with vision sees. You can see why the Buddha said this is abstruse and difficult and hard to see. Okay? So it all hinges around this little phrase. How do those with vision see? Here, one sees whatever has come to being as come to being. That might seem absurdly simple. Um, And it is. (laughs) But uh, what the Buddha points to is, um, the problem is not in what we are, or even defining what we are, but the, the problems come from habitual identification with what we're not, and and uh, everything that we we tend to think that we are—the body, the personality, memories, ideas, um, even the feeling of selfhood—these are all elements of consciousness which have come into being. And what he's saying here is that to recognise. These are things which have arisen, these are, are, are qualities which have come into being. Once we see that they have come into being, that they are dependent, they have, have come out of, of, uh, of nothingness, that they are just patterns of consciousness, as we see that they are impermanent qualities, then the heart starts to become dispassionate towards that. We start to, to let go of that identification, and that, that letting go of identification that That is the path itself and then with the falling away of identification with what we 're not, then what is real becomes apparent now it's also significant that um, this teaching on selflessness was uh, the first teaching which uh, caused uh, which caused um other beings to be enlightened after the the buddha 's own enlightenment he, um, and he, he was being persuaded to, to go and teach by the Brahma Sahampati. He went to Benares to join up again with five other wanderers, wandering ascetics that he 'd lived with before he 'd gone off to practice on his own and um, these uh, These characters that were all fierce ascetics and, and the Buddha had been uh, you know the fiercest of them all but then uh, they got the impression that he'd gone soft because he, he started eating. <laughs> Wildly indulgent. He had, some, he had some rice pudding one day. Um, this young woman called Sujata. The Buddha actually was so emaciated. They were, like on, uh, you know, they were just sort of living on cow dung and, and uh, raw, you know, one raw rice grain day, these kind of things. So the Buddha became so weak that he keeled over and, and became unconscious and he realized wisdom arose and he, he saw this is too much <laughs> this is not wise and so then this young woman called Sujata floated into the picture and um, she had this bowl of, of milk rice and she offered it to him and he ate this rice and his strength came back and then um, he uh, uh, he realized well that's a bit better and he, he saw that he'd been too far too tough on himself and that with a body so weak and emaciated he could never attain any kind of clarity of mind. So then the other wanderers, his 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 mates, saw this and were absolutely appalled. He should eat rice pudding. And <laughs> and so they they became disgusted with him and, and thought, Oh, he's just turned to luxury <laughs> So anyway, he he came back to Benares and found them. And um, originally, they saw him coming in the distance, and they thought they they decided amongst themselves they wouldn't even get up and say hello. They wouldn't pay their respects or 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 greet him at all because he'd just he'd reverted to this the the low path and become indulgent. But they they, his presence was so powerful, and his his demeanor was so so radiant and. so serene that they, they couldn't stop themselves from, from getting up and, and greeting him and, and uh, looking after him and paying respects in an appropriate way. So then the first teaching that he gave them was on the Four Noble Truths, on the existence of, of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, on its cause, that of self-centered desire, craving, that that... Um, uh, dukkha can cease that we can we can get beyond the experience of dissatisfaction we can experience um, perfect reality and that the path to that is what's called the Eightfold Path so as he was describing the Four Noble Truths and only one of them understood what he was saying kundanya uh, and uh, so he, uh, while the Buddha was speaking and describing the Four Noble Truths, what they, call, what, what they describe as the eye of Dhamma opened up in Kundanya. He became a stream-enterer. He understood what the path was. So and, uh, the word for knowledge is Anya. So and the, the Buddha was very fond of word plays. And he said, so that as he realized that Kandanya understood him, he said, uh, Kandanya knows, Kundanya knows. Uh, anyasi watabo Kondanyo, anyasi watabo Kondanyoti. And then, as a, a footnote to the, su- to the sutra, it says, and so from that time onwards, Kandanya was, no- was known as Anya Kandanya, <laughs> <laughs> first cousin to Udacha Kukucha and Vichikicha. <laughs> so he became Anya Kandanya. But uh, so oftentimes people think, you know, the, or the, the the tradition comes down that the Buddha gave the four noble truths and all his you know, disciples were enlightened. But that wasn't the case. Not even Kandanya was enlightened. He just was the first step on the path. And it wasn't until the second discourse, which is the discourse on selflessness, the Anatalakana Sutta, that this is when the 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 five um, ascetics uh, all uh, realized the, the Dhamma and and. Uh, we're enlightened. And then uh, the, w- the way the Buddha approached this question is through a kind of, um, sort of dialectical inquiry. He starts off by, by saying um, to them, uh, is material form permanent or impermanent? And they say, it's impermanent. It changes. Um, what about um, feelings? Feelings. Vedana, are they permanent or impermanent? Well, impermanent. What about perceptions? Are they impermanent or permanent? They're impermanent. What about mental formations, ideas, emotions, memories? Are they permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. What about consciousness, different states of of consciousness? Are they permanent or impermanent? So, well, they're, they're, they're impermanent too. Okay, so is that which is impermanent? Is that uh, is that s- satisfactory or is that unsatisfactory? Does that always bring satisfaction, or is that unsatisfactory? I so, said, well, it's it's unsatisfactory. It can't please us all the time. And he goes through the same list of five things. So too with material form, with feelings, with perceptions, with mental formations, with consciousness. These are all unsatisfactory. And he says, so is that which, we, is, that which is impermanent and unsatisfactory? Is, that, is it suitable to think of that as, as who and what we are? To think this is, this is me, this is what I am, this is, this is myself? I say, no. No. And this is, comes from the, the understanding of, or the implications of the word atta, atta, or atma, atman in, in, in Sanskrit. So the Buddha goes through these, these five things. He says, therefore, um, whatever material form there is, the body, uh, Uh, Or any kind of material form, whether it's internal or external, whether it's the body or parts of the body, whether it's the world outside, whether it's people or mountains or trees or the ground or the air. Any kind of material form, internal or external, near or far, coarse or fine, pure or impure. All material form should be contemplated in this way, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. Then the same with perception, any kind of perception, internal or external, near or far, coarse or fine, pure or impure, this too should be considered, this is not me, this is not what I am, this is not myself. So with, with, uh, with feeling, with perception, with mental formations, and consciousness, all states of consciousness, he brings them to this point of, of saying, yeah, this too we have to contemplate as this is not me, this is not what I am, this is not myself. Then, it com- then he brings them to the point of, of saying, seeing thus, the wise noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards material form, becomes dispassionate towards feeling, becomes dispassionate towards perception becomes dispassionate towards mental formations, becomes dispassionate towards states of consciousness, even the most refined states of consciousness. When there is dispassion, then, then one's attachment, one's uh, desire, one's passion for those fades away. With the, w- with the fading away of passion, the heart is liberated, and when the heart is liberated, there is the knowledge it is liberated. This is the last birth. There is no more coming to any state of being. And as he says this, then at that moment, then all of the, the, um, the five of the ascetics became enlightened. They realized the truth. So what he's doing there is he's going through, point by point, all of these different elements of, of that which comes into being, whether it's elements of, of the physical world or of the mental world. Like what's these, these, um, these five are called the five khandhas, and it's simply a way of, of dividing up the mental and physical world. So he's pointing at every element of the mental and physical universe that we experience and, and pointing out th- these are things which have, have come into being and recognizing them as such, and recognizing that any anything whatsoever cannot satisfy, cannot be who and what we are. So then, in that recognition, there's a letting go of that identification of them. And, and then, in that letting go of identification with what we're not, then the reality of what is becomes manifest the reality of the dhamma of the uh, of the unconditioned the unborn the unoriginated the ultimate reality becomes visible so when we speak uh, of selflessness, it's exactly this way that we should we should use it, because, I, like in that list of things that uh, that I was reading out there, you know, one of them, the things that, that the Buddha says, is is uh, is part of the thicket of views, is saying you know, to say, one of them is my self exists, the self exists for me, and then. Another one of those views is no self exists for me. So when people say Buddhists believe they, you know, there is no self, that's incorrect. Anatta is not is not a doct- It's not a metaphysical doctrine. It's not a belief system. It's not um, a kind of principle to hang on to. In that way, sometimes you hear this said. You know, Buddhists Buddhists believe they have no soul. That's really bad news. <laughs> No soul. That's not the case. That uh, the, 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 the teaching of anatta is a tool. It's a kind of dialectical tool. Uh, a way of reflecting upon the nature of experience. Just as the principle of change, or the principle of unsatisfactoriness. These are not like absolute principles like the, you know, the universe is unsatisfactory or the universe is dukkha everything is suffering as an absolute principle or statement these are not absolute truths they're, they're like a set of screwdrivers you know, or a set of you know, lenses or, or kitchen knives and scrapers with which we pick up and experience a feeling of love or hate a feeling of, of, of joy or sorrow a feeling of, of, of heat or cold, sight or sound, smell, taste, touch, whatever it might be. Picking up a single experience and examining it, looking at it. In exactly the same way that the Buddha walked through the whole process with these, the five ascetics. Saying, look, you know, is this satisfactory or is it not? Here's this delicious taste, okay, can you hang on to it? Okay, it's delicious. Okay, take another mouthful. Is it still delicious? And another, and another. Okay, you're on the 545th mouthful. Is it still delicious? It's lovely to hug your mother. Okay. For, for a minute, right. Two minutes, okay. An hour? Getting a bit tired. Two hours, three hours, four hours, a week? Clamp to your mother for a week. How is this? the satisfactory turns into the unsatisfactory, right? <laughs> so it's, it's to be understood. And the Venerable Tanisaro, who has um, taught here a few times, um, uh, wrote a, a very uh, useful um, piece that was published in the, the journal of the, of the uh, of, of IMS and the Buddhist Studies Center, which he refers to this as the, the not-self strategy, which I think is a very, very useful phrase, that it's not a doctrine, it's not a, it's not a dogma. It's a strategy um, whereby we can examine the feeling of selfhood and better understand it and better be able to not be confused by it, to understand the feeling of selfhood and to, to be able to, to let go of it. Now, this is the uh, the most important of all the Buddha's teachings, in my occasionally humble opinion. <laughs> this this is the uh, the big enchilada of the Buddhist uh, cookbook, um, because uh, the, the Buddha makes no um, no secret of the fact that that the um, the self, the sense of self, is the, the major the major obstacle to to liberation, and that um, over and over again, this is pointed out as, as the the major the, this con, what he calls the conceit of I am as mana. and the greatest happiness that we experience is the happiness of being free from that. There's a little verse. Where he says, um, seclusion is happiness for one who has, who has um, seen and understood the Dhamma. Um, friendliness to all beings is happiness to, to one who, uh, who loves nonviolence. violence um, Dispassion towards the world is happiness for one who has let go of all sense desires. But freedom from the conceit, I am, this is the greatest happiness of all. And uh, another place where he says, uh, freedom from the conceit I am, this is the realization of Nibbāna here and now. So this is, this is major stuff and, and very central. And so it, it's you know, a very uh, key element of Vipassana meditation, insight meditation. And so it's not just a matter of, of taking hold of an experience and, and saying to ourselves, This is not Self. Uh, as trying to, you know, like kind of sticking it on your fridge to remind yourself, <laughs> you know, this is not me and mine. It's, t- it's more than just sticking a label on it. Um, the, the whole point of the practice is to come to a, a completely grounded and kind of bone deep realization that. that The body, the feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. These are not self. Even the feeling of selfhood is not self. So, then to use the meditation as a way of developing skillful means to to become acquainted with the feeling of selfhood, the, the conceit, I am. Is is a central um, part of the work of uh, of what we're what we're doing here, and um, it's one of the most kind of slippery and difficult things to develop any kind of objectivity about. There's a, a passage at the end of um, one of the discourses in the middle length sayings, the Panchataya Sutta, and where the, the Buddha says, um, Perhaps there is, the, if they imagine there's somebody meditating, and they are far from, far beyond sensual desire, far beyond ill will, far beyond all the, the five hindrances that Venerable Punodamo so eloquently. Discourse to us on last night, far beyond the five hindrances, and their mind is clear and concentrated, and and bright. And then in that person, they they, um, they the thought arises: I am at peace. I am without clinging. I have realised nibbana. And then the Buddha says this wonderful phrase: But um, but the very fact that he proclaims it in this way uh, indicates the clinging which still exists because of framing that experience in terms of I am at, pe- I am at peace I am without clinging I have realized Nibbana that very phraseology um, demonstrates that the whole thing is still subsumed by the, the self-concept the belief that there's a person here who is uh, experiencing these things, who is owning this, who, and who has achieved something, and then, uh, then from that, the Buddha goes on to say um, that uh, the you know the wise one, one who understands clearly then will instead of, of uh, framing things in that way, the wise one will um, be clearly aware of um, the origin, he phrases it as the origin, the, origi- the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. uh, with respect to the six senses. What that means is the origination and the disappearance. That means a sight, a visual object appears, disappears. Um, A thought appears, disappears. A sound appears and disappears. Uh, A physical sensation appears and disappears. So the the origination and disappearance. The gratification. In fact, when we see something that's uh, attractive or interesting or meaningful, the gratification, ooh, what's that? Ooh, look at that. Even the gratification of being annoyed at something. You know, you hear an ugly sound and you go, yuck! What the hell is that? Can't they fix the heating system here? That gratif- there's a gratification in just forming an opinion. The danger is then the identification, the holding on, the grasping of that gratification. The looking at that experience as being something solid and real. And the escape is that of letting go, of non-identification. And even with, as d- described at the beginning of that, where you have someone, you know, when your mind is clear and bright and pure, and you think, at last, I've made it. <sighs> to see that even though there's there's um, there's you know, no visible defilements then um, there's the gratification but the danger is, of it is then as we own it as we as we plant that on top of the experience, not only do we confine it in terms of uh, of um, uh, the sense of, of, of owning it, then at the moment of owning we become afraid of losing it. At the moment of owning it we conceive ourselves as somehow uh, having achieved something. We create a distortion, uh, um, uh, a kind of contortion of the, of the reality. We've lost it. And then the escape is a is letting go of that. Now, I, from the very beginning, I was uh, always um, impressed by these teachings on selflessness. And I thought, this is, this is great, this is marvelous, this is, this is fantastic stuff. And, uh, but in many ways, um, the, uh, it was more like a kind of intellectual... It was a sort of the, uh, the beauty of it, uh, of the sort of intellectual aesthetic of the idea like the logic hung together and it sounded great, it made a lot of sense. And, and I thought, well, this is brilliant, marvelous teaching. But it took a long time to really come to a, a sense of, 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 of this in an experiential way. And also learning how to work with it. How to actually get a hold of, get a feeling for the sense of self. And the, the way this came about um, is, uh, uh, is kind of curious, the time span that it, that it, that it occurred over. Now, Ajahn Sumedho, um, even though he's a, a devout Theravadan bhikkhu, um, uh, one of the reasons why he ended up staying with Ajahn Chah was because of um, Ajahn Chah's kind of flexibility around Different types of meditation practice. So, when uh, before before he came to the monastery, while he was st- Ajahn Sameda was still a layman, he, he was in the p- the first batch of people in the Peace Corps in 1963, and he'd already been into Buddhist meditation when he was in Berkeley, um, in the late 50s and early 60s. And when he was uh, when he was living off in in Borneo, he would get Buddhist books sent to him through a um, various different friends, and one of the books that he got sent was this this uh, three-volume collection called Chan and Zen Training, which were the Dharma discourses of a, anci- a very old Chinese master called Xu, uh, Master Shu Yun. And uh, in one of these books there was the discourses from a 70-day Chan retreat, and you think you're having a difficult time on <laughs> day three of a 10-day retreat. The Ma- these uh, these retreats of Master Shuyun, there'd be something like 23 hours of formal practice a day. It's either sitting or running meditation. <laughs> <laughs> you, they, you can run in a, a circle around the interior of the Dharma hall. Anyway, I won't go into all of that. But it's kind of exciting stuff, but I'll leave it. Anyway, um, the the... The method of practice that Master Xu Yun taught was the investigation of a koan, and the koan that he used is uh, "Who am I?" And that was the, the basic meditation technique: was to investigate this this question, "Who am I?" So uh, Ajahn Sumedho had had um, been um, reading these discourses and having no other meditation guidance, he he was following this method so anyway um, when he, he, uh, he finished his time in the Peace Corps went to Thailand eventually became a, a novice and spent a year living in complete seclusion just following this practice and um, studying the, the Four Noble Truths he read Nyanati Loka's book The Word of the Buddha 80 times during that year um, and the, but the meditation method he did was this investigation of who am I so and now, this time, it was just meditation practice was just becoming popular again in Thailand, and it was very much um, like different monasteries had their different techniques, and this teacher would have this technique, and that teacher would have that technique, and there was lots of discussions about samatha and vipassana and which was better and which was worse, and what the right what the right technique was. So uh, this had been very much in the air when Ajahn Sumedho was living in Bangkok, and anyway he. He, uh, through various strange circumstances, he ended up going to visit Ajahn Ajahn Chah just after his bhikkhu ordination. And Ajahn Chah asked him, what kind of meditation have you been doing? And uh, he had this sort of anxious, sinking feeling of, oh God, I tell him what I've been doing, he's going to say, I have to stop this and do his method. Because that's what all the others said in, in Bangkok. So he told him, and then Ajahn Char just asked him, well, what were the results of that? You know, how does it work? And he described it, and he said, okay, we'll just carry on doing that. Sounds all right. You know, which completely flummoxed the um, young Sumato. And he said, oh, great, well, obviously, this guy is fairly liberal. And so he stayed. And um, anyway, he had never mentioned much of this uh, in the past. And then one year, early on in the, the days of Chithurst Monastery in England, um, it's probably a year or so after I'd got back from Thailand, probably 1980, 81, we were having a community retreat. And it was about um, a week or so into this retreat. And... Um, uh, and Ajahn Sumedha had also just started teaching the meditation on the Nada sound the, the sound of silence I was describing this morning and um, that had been going for he'd been we'd been doing that for several days and it was a very peaceful atmosphere and then one evening he um, he um, was uh, giving a Dharma talk and then he kind of sort of drew it into a guided meditation. And uh, he, was, he then taught us how to use this, this um, investigation of the koan. And so he had everyone just to think the phrase, who am I? So wait, concentrate your mind on the nada sound, let your mind go as empty as possible, completely empty, and then drop the question, who am I? Really pose the question, really ask yourself, Who am I? And then notice immediately after the question there's a gap, and then all the thoughts kind of start charging in. You know, I'm, like this, I'm like that. All the kind of verbal answers. He says, Well, forget all the, the, the verbal answers. Leave them alone, let the mind go silent again, and then ask the question Who am I? And once again, there's a moment, a hesitation, there's a gap where the mind is perfectly aware, all mentation has ceased, you're awake, and there's no clinging. He said, okay, aim for the gap. <laughs> Stay there. And uh, and he just left it like that. And then we sat for about another 20 minutes or so and he rang the bell. And the, I remember, it was very distinct, it was nearly 20 years ago now, but I remember when we opened our eyes and we were all kind of looking around the room like, wow, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Because it was um, in a way a, a kind of doorway uh, that that none of us had used before, and uh, it was um, a very helpful skillful means to to kind of break up at least momentarily the the kind of self creating process so um, yeah, you know, I was very impressed by this this um, technique and started to use it. And I guess I found that I could, um, in a way, get an intuition of the um, the the quality of, of selflessness in that way, because at that at that moment of of, kind of dropping the question or the, or the the gap after the question finishes then there is that uh, a quality of profound clarity and um, and it's a very good way of just getting the thinking to stop and training the mind to, to not continually create thoughts but anyway, I, um so I, I use this kind of meditation quite a quite a lot. And um and had thought of it and had thought that it was like this is what you know getting rid of the self was or seeing through the self. And uh, had taken it in that way and certainly that seemed to be what the that kind of practice was about. But um it wasn't until about three or four years later. And I was uh, again on a retreat uh, up in our little monastery in the north of England. You know, rather like this, it was all surrounded by... S- well, we were surrounded by snow, but we were we kind of snowed in for the winter. And there was a very small community, only about four or five of us there, uh, about three monks and two, two novices. And it was very, very quiet, hardly any visitors. And I, and I was in a kind of... Um, uh, sort of high octane practice mode, um, you know, and uh, putting a lot of energy into formal practice, and after about six weeks, it was like a two month long retreat, and after about six weeks of this retreat, and uh, yeah, for years and years, my mind had been is thinking non stop and and very very busy, and this kind of um, uh, Questioning practice that Ajahn Sumedho had introduced. It was the first real way that I found that I could kind of break up the the flow. And and, um, anyway, so three or four years later, here we are, and doing all this formal practice, and finally I found that I could, you know, my mind could actually stop. And uh, there was so little stimulation, the conditions were so perfect. And, and I'd been, you know, working hard at meditation for, you know, i been a monk for about five or six years altogether now. So it was finally like, you know, had your foot on the, on the brake for, <laughs> for six years and finally the thing had come to a halt. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I we, we hit about the six-week mark and I, first of all I thought, oh, this is great. I can think if I want to think and if I don't want to think, I don't think. Oh, this is tremendous. But then after a few days, um, I began to notice, this is kind of boring, (laughs) hmm, this shouldn't be boring, this should be joyful, this should be delight, this should be Nibbana, this should be the the goal of the holy life. Here I am, sitting here in the shrine room, day after day, and nothing's happening, and this is really boring. (laughs) I was looking forward to this. And then uh, at first it was just the kind of curiosity, and I thought, oh well, you know, we'll get past this and it'll get all kind of nice in a, mo- in a moment. <laughs> but it didn't, it just stayed really boring. And I thought, this is a bummer. H- how could you build a world religion around this? So either the Buddha was a really great con-artist <laughs> or, or, or something's going wrong here. And then day after day I was, I was sitting there and doing the walking meditation and, and, uh, and I can see there's no... you know, I went through the list, right? Sense, desire, nope, nothing. Ill will, nothing. Uh, dullness, no, nope, wide awake. Uh, Doubt? No, no doubts. I I see what the path is, and um, restlessness. No, I can sit here for hours. (laughs) Okay, well they're not around, and uh, and it was really became quite perplexing. And days and days I was sitting there thinking, well, if it's not something I'm missing, if finally it dawned on me, I thought, if it's not something I'm missing maybe there's there's something in the way, because there's this feeling of kind of being clogged up with something. But, you know, there's none of these kind of major hindrances or, or, or defilements are around. What is it? Wh- what, what is here? Maybe there's something here that shouldn't be here. I thought, what is it? And I, and I looked around, and I thought of this, and I thought of that, and suddenly it dawned on me, ah, I know what's here. I am. (laughs) Oh. It's like, boing You know, a little light bulb suddenly appeared in the shrine room. I'm here. And then, uh, and this is like a kind of revelation, whereby suddenly it it dawned that the whole time um, I've been doing this, and and even doing this... this, um, the practice of investigation, investigation of this kind of question, you know, what what am I? Who am I? Who is it that's aware? What is it that knows? Using these kind of questions to investigate. That all the time there had been this unspoken assumption that here is a person who is doing the meditation. This is me doing my practice. Here's me on my way to Nibbana. And there was this kind of you know that, that experience where it's both embarrassing and relieving at the same time? <laughs> like, you know, what a dummy! How did I miss that? And so then um, I, f- it, I began to, to realize that rather than that, just that, that kind of questioning being useful for like breaking up the flow of thought um, and just causing the sense of self to stumble, you know, the thought-creating and self-creating process just to kind of trip over its own feet momentarily, I began to see that that form of inquiry and raising a question in that way, what it's actually useful for is that in that moment we illuminate the feeling of selfhood, that, that feeling of I, what the Buddha called ahankara, made of I, Ahang means I am, kara means make, to make, or mamankara means made of minus. Ahankara mamankara. It's another one of those. <laughs> that that is actually a, a, a distinct experience that we can, a distinct feeling that we can know, that feeling of I-ness. And that when we, when we inquire, into what am I, who is it that's aware, what is it that knows that at that moment that that feeling of Iness is is revealed, we get a sense for what that is, and we begin to to, to be able to, to let go of it and I began to experience this strange um, sort of unfolding whereby you begin to see that the question who am I becomes ridiculous because who presumes a person. Just the the word who presumes there is some person there. So then I found that kind of falling away and then so I started to use the question what am I? That's kind of, you know, rather than being a person, okay, I can just be an object. And then then you still had the the I in the question, and that again, the, just the word I implies there's an individual personhood here. So then I try, I, it sort of, it just changed on its own into what is it? And then that started to feel kind of strange, because an it meant there was an ob a thing out there, and an and an observer here who was watching it, an it and a not it. And so then I found the, the it falling away. So then it got to, what is? And uh, again, that seemed to, to, to dissolve and fall away and, and just become a, a, a kind of an open sense of, 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 of a question of, of what? And then, in in uh, in just resting with that, then even that kind of question fell away, and uh, the experience was uh, was uh, at that time was uh, it was like up until that t- that that moment, this experience of having you know the sim- very um, good samadhi at that time, the, the mind quite concentrated and clear. What had become more and more apparent was that like. Just having a, a calm mind, which wasn't thinking, even though it was quite bright, it was like being shut up in a grey box. It was like the the, the this the, the the quality, the feeling of of selfhood, of inus and minus, was like a grey prison cell. That you know you'd lived in your whole life, and you were so used to it. I mean, that you you just didn't notice it was there because you're buzzing around doing your things in your in your cell. And then it's only when you kind of stop and you stop being so busy and stop being so confused and caught up and you sit down and you think, Wait a minute, I'm in jail! <laughs> huh! And that had been the experience of the early part of the retreat, realizing this kind of jail experience. And then, and then in using this kind of inquiry, I found it was like the it was almost like a visual I, n- I never see visions or any kind of visual effects in meditation, but it was it was almost like the kind of the walls fell out like the walls fell open, and suddenly it was like being out in a suddenly it was like sunshine and warm breezes and fields of flowers and a sense of kind of freshness and and life and incredible relief and um, so I this um, element of, of selflessness, self-inquiry, is, is a crucial aspect of the path, because without that, then if all we have is uh, an idea of selflessness, um, and we have, oh, and uh, a quality of, of mental control, of, of of calmness. Then it's like we're we're in st- we're in our cell, but we kind of painted the walls, <laughs> you we know, we got nice landscapes painted on the walls, or or we got stuck up on you know a little note to remind ourselves, you know, there's big space outside. Somewhere there are flowers and free space. But it doesn't do much for us, does it? Because we know we're still inside. So, um, this uh, using this kind of inquiry and um, applying the focusing ability of the mind to, to really become intimately acquainted with that feeling of selfhood and to illuminate it to to really um, see through it and to realize the sense of self is just a mental object the sense of i is not self this is not me just as much as a you know this clock is not me it's not mine it's it's not myself the feeling of i ness is not me or mine or, or what i am so another thing that's extremely helpful to, to meditate on in this way is when, your mind, when, you, when you can focus your mind and the mind is quite empty and if you can find the nada sound to use that focusing on the, the sound of silence wait till the mind is really still and as clear as possible and then just think your own name just bring up your own name it's so totally familiar to us Say, I am Susan, or Harold, John, and at first, you know, it's it's kind of seems normal, but then just again, let it go into silence, bring it back again. Say, Amara. And when we, we begin to, to contemplate our own name then something very radical starts to change inside us because something in us knows what the hell does that mean? Huh? And that which is most familiar to us when we just say it a thousand times and it doesn't, it's kind of lost its substance. Suddenly the wealth of what that thing refers to starts to kind of open up for us. And you oh dear, <laughs> and then you begin to see that what we normally ascribe that that word to, trying to put a name onto what the experience of isness is, it's rather like I like to compare. It's like writing. It's like trying to write your name on a on a waterfall. You know, using a torch, a flash- flashlight, you call it. Yeah writing your name with a flashlight on a waterfall it's like because <laughs> the experience in the heart is like what has that got to do with anything real now you have to kind of experiment with this to find to, to see what I'm talking about and maybe some of you think this is all complete gibberish but to try it and see because it's, it's an amazing thing that our own name starts to sound like the weirdest weirdest concept imaginable, and the vastness of what is is real, that is, that this body, this personality is the doorway to, starts to become visible, and that we realize that we've, we've only looked at the surface of ourselves, we spend our entire attention fixated on the superficialities of body and personality, Personal history, and that which are, that in us which is ultimately real, you know, is is far greater and and more pure and brilliant, alive than uh, than anything that we are we are used to conceiving or can conceive. So, using this kind of method it opens up that doorway within us and as I've said before once that, there's a, a moment of, of realization or, or, or that kind of peacefulness and that sense of that reality leave it alone. the the conceiving tendency always wants to jump in and grab it or own it or write a poem about it and I I speak as a compulsive (laughs) fiddler and poem writer Um, leave it alone allow that space to be there and that rest rest in the gap so I offer this you to consider this evening. This is the Dharma Supper. Sayu, sayu, sayu.